Hey, y'all, I wanted to take a second before we get into this episode to remind you that the show is also available on YouTube. And starting from episode number 101, it's all in 4K. I'm trying to make the best video podcast I can, so definitely check it out and subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Go to youtube.com slash at progressionspod or hit the link in the show notes. If you're not getting enough progressions and you want to get even more thoughts on creativity, productivity, and growth in music, then you should sign up for my newsletter. You'll find a brief article in each monthly edition as well as updates on progressions and myself. I'm also sharing some workflow hacks and links to stuff that I found interesting or helpful. So it should be fun. If you want to stay up to date on the latest and get all the bonus stuff, go to travisferrance.com slash subscribe or click the link in the show notes. So before we roll into this latest bonus episode, I feel like I need to drop a quick disclaimer in here. Nothing in this podcast should be taken in any way as financial advice. If you're interested in cryptocurrency, I encourage you all to do thorough research on the topic and to make your own decisions based on your own financial situations. And that has got to be the only time there's been a disclaimer like that before a music podcast. So I hope you all enjoy it. Hey, welcome to Progression, Success in the Music Industry. I'm your host, Travis Ference, and this is a special bonus episode revolving around the world of blockchain, NFTs, and Web 3.0, and the potential impact these things could have for music and the arts. I was inspired to do this episode by some really great conversations around the topic that I've been having with friends and colleagues, as well as with a ton of smart people over on the Complete Producer Network. So today, we will be joined by Noel Jackson, who was previously on the show way back in episode 15. He's returning today to play the role of tech-savvy, future forward-thinking music producer and computer engineer. If you want his full story, definitely check out episode 15. But the quick rundown of his background is that he's an artist, music producer, and mastering engineer, as well as a computer engineer, user experience designer, and hacker. He's been involved in all things internet since 1998, and I definitely can't think of a better person to have this chat with. I will be playing the role of the blockchain curious. I know just enough to sound like I know what I'm talking about, as long as you don't know what I'm talking about. So on that note, let's get to it. Welcome to the show, Noel Jackson. What's up, Noel? How are you? Hey, thanks for having me, Travis. It's great to be here. Yeah, what, uh, we haven't caught up in forever, man. How you been? I know. Hopefully it's been it's, good. It's been a while. I've been, I've been really <laughs> good. I've been good. How about you? That's awesome. Uh, good. I mean, I'm finally in, in my studio that I called you about many times. So Yeah, it looks great. I'm really happy that you you went through all of that process. It's a, it's a wonderful journey, and now you've, you've got a great base to work from. It's amazing. Oh yeah, it is. It is pretty amazing. And for anybody that is thinking about spending money on like gear, like make sure you can hear first. They're like, they're just listening in this room is, you know, whatever. We're not here to talk about my room. It makes you, it makes you question some of those uh, previous purchases, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. Some of them may have been sold already, but uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But so I wanted to start this conversation at kind of the most basic level uh, mostly because I know my parents are going to for sure listen to this. And so we've got to give them a fighting chance to like make it more than five minutes. That is a bit of a joke, but I know that there will be people that listen to this that maybe have zero understanding with blockchain and NFT, crypto, Web 3.0, all these things that have become buzzwords. Can you lay down like a baseline understanding of some of the stuff for us to yeah, start with? Absolutely. And I think that it's, I talk to a lot of people about crypto or what we should call digital assets a lot. And I've been on the web since 1998, probably a little bit earlier, to be honest. And 
I think that not understanding something that you're going to use or be invested in is one of the most difficult parts about it. And so getting some basics down and an understanding of this is is seemingly very complicated, but it's it's very simple. Everybody has used a spreadsheet, I'm assuming, at one point in time or another. And that's maybe. yeah, maybe, <laughs> maybe. So if you think about your spreadsheet that could potentially be a bank account, you really have a ledger that has a one-to-one tracking of who you're sending from, who you're sending to, and other information like how much and a memo. Right. If you think about the blockchain as a very simple spreadsheet that is (laughs) distributed across thousands, tens of thousands of computers, and they all keep track of it together, and they help verify the integrity of all the data in that, that essentially is the blockchain. So it's simply a way of communicating transactional data and doing so in a manner that verifies its integrity. So pretty, pretty simple, I think. And when you break it down like that, yeah, it is, it is kind of, it's like balancing uh, your checkbook. You just, you're writing all the things down and looking at them, verifying that it's correct. Okay. That's it. We're done. Um, Perfect. Now we know. <laughs> now we know. So it, it gets a little bit more complicated after that when you start to, to look at everything. You know, the, the point is to, to have decentralization and you want to be able to autonomously run this ledger and transact data. That's really it. It's a, it's a database that runs on a lot of different computers and they use consensus mechanisms to verify the integrity of that data. And we have a lot of different classifications for different types of digital assets. And I think that it gets a little tricky to dig in with all the information out there that's going around. I think there's a, there's with every technology that comes out, there's, there's a little bit of negative sentiment towards it. Some fear of change. Exactly. So what we have with blockchain technology is a few different categories and they typically fall into what we would call layer one protocols uh, and, and layer twos. And we would also look at things as in uh, the category of being an asset or a store of value. And we would look at things as being in a as a smart contract platform. And we know those as Bitcoin, which would be a digital asset, and Ethereum as a smart contract platform. And Ethereum takes the initial idea of a ledger like Bitcoin. So Bitcoin is is the, the digital gold, the original OG digital asset, and it is a store of value. It is money. It's digital money. Ethereum is also money, but its intention was to create a platform 
where you could in, introduce logic into that ledger, that blockchain. So as we have computer programs that run on our local machines, all of those are logic conditions, logic gates, and all it is is a lot of if-then-else statements. Right. If this, then that. So Ethereum is it was really novel. It was, uh, I believe, I want to say 2016 or 2017 it came out. Um, I might be off on that. And when you start to think about different activities in life, like, for example, purchasing a home or a legal agreement between multiple individuals, you can start to break these things down into being very defined sets of logic. And if we were able to automate that logic and provide more transparency and more ease of use to all those logic conditions, you'd be able to do a lot of different things on a blockchain with all of that information. So a smart contract platform essentially is like a really big distributed computing network. So these different contracts that are created are like programs with different types of logic in them. So you could say Travis and Noel and 10 other people are part of a group. Whenever a dollar comes in, it's split evenly across all of us. And there's a very simple use case for a smart contract. We're all a group of people. Anything coming in is split evenly between all of us. Okay. So if you start to take that simple concept and move a little bit further, you get into some really interesting ideas of distributing data in ways that we do naturally in the regular world and automating that process. Some really interesting use cases like, for example, music royalties yep. could be something very useful because these activities that the most people take part in that are seen as kind of a burden of everyday life right. are also the things that really fuel our life and, and motivate us. And, and that's kind of why we do things in the music industry. It's really wonderful to put out music and to get paid for it, to, to get paid to do what you love to do is a great thing. That's right. But we're missing a lot of transparency behind that when you get money from a record company. You don't know how long you've been waiting for that, when they got it, how much you're actually getting. It's a very confusing and kind of disastrous process that really makes people say things like, the music industry is awful, it's full of vultures, it's, you know, there's a lot of negative sentiment Oh yeah, that's introduced into the music industry because there isn't transparency about what goes on. So the opportunity that we have with blockchain is that the blockchain is printed to an immutable ledger. So all the activity is stored decentralized in a way that can never 
change, and everyone can go in and view it and track it. So in the future, you won't really be questioning how long you waited to receive a payment or how much was taken out. And when you sign on to work on a project, you're probably not going to be worried if you're actually going to get that 25% because it's going to be programmed already in your contract right? that you digitally signed. Right. And everybody's going to be able to see that. So the benefits are massive and you really have to, you have to really think through the technology and, and kind of have that basic understanding of what is this thing? What is this tool? And why is everybody talking about it? I have a question about, and uh, I've always, like I've read articles about artists releasing music on the blockchain and how, you know, everybody involved then gets paid immediately. Why is it that payments happen so fast? First question. And second question, if you're going to talk about like immediate payments based on sales or streams, isn't that a crazy number of transactions? If you're doing immediate transactions to everybody and I listen to a song five times, isn't it more effective to do a single transaction like at the end of the quarter? And then isn't that where like Spotify or whoever's like, hey, we're still going to pay you at the end of the quarter. It's just going to be immediate because we don't want to break down the transactions. You know what I'm saying? Well, you know, you you surely could solve those problems. Um, You could have a... (laughs) smart contract that is your transactional contract and that periodically uh, every time that the money hits a certain threshold, then a payment is sent out to the artists. Ah, uh, okay. That, yes. that could definitely, that could be something you could, you could program in there. You really hit on kind of the key here is, is transactions. Right. Number of transactions, transaction volume, number of wallets, number of addresses, and that's that's the key piece of this that we are still very early with. Mm. So, uh, th- and that's kind of the core metric of measuring these different smart contract platforms. And I I, I definitely separate out Bitcoin from other digital assets from the smart contract platforms are a a different category than Bitcoin. And we do we do need different utility and different technologies that use a blockchain ledger. Those transactions are really what kind of get people going, get people upset about. And I, I think that it's a really telling sign when you look at these different smart contract platforms and start looking at the number of transactions that they can process per second, you see some massively different numbers. And from that, you can kind of start to hack away at these problematic arguments and issues that arise. So Ethereum, for example, does around 15 transactions per second. So that seems really low. It is. It, quite okay. frankly, it's it's very low. And the Visa network does about sixteen thousand transactions per second. So if you're ever out and shopping and you go to charge something, you're like, ah, oh, you know, I got I got to wait about fifteen seconds for this to go through. 
it's because only 16,000 transactions can be processed per second. Right. If you look at something like the NASDAQ, that is a place where about a million transactions per second need to occur for the latency of the market to be reflective of real activity in the world. So the war that's going on, the battle, I should say, in the smart contract world, is that for transactions per second. And the one that hits the million transactions per second first is pretty well poised to be a a leader in the space. Right. Ethereum really kind of has legacy to it. And that's what holds its value where it is. But 15 transactions per second is not a lot. And the kicker to that is also how much does a transaction cost? And that's that's the tricky part. So right. we're really early. We're really early with all of this. And it shouldn't make sense from how the media portrays it. It shouldn't make sense unless you spend time getting to understand it using it, trying it out, and not taking what everyone says at face value. Don't take what I say at face <laughs> value. Go and, and, and do your own research and, and try these things out and see, see what you can do with them, see what the utility is. That's as scary as it is. There's a lot of really cool things taking place. I, I feel like a lot of people think because you're kind of like changing the way that I'm, I'm thinking about this. I think the average person kind of thinks like blockchain, that word just immediately leads to Bitcoin. And then that word leads to Ethereum. And then you think, oh, which one's going to win? But to me, it sounds like there is no winner. Blockchain is a technology that a lot of things are going to be built on. You might do monetary transactions in these different currencies, but track your royalties and your digital assets and your ownerships and in other other blockchains. Is that kind of what could potentially happen? You have some that are just really data tracking and others that become like monetary, you know, staples. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I would start to look at digital assets and blockchain technology. You know, fundamentally what it is, is it's allowing us to compute and store data in a decentralized way and in a transparent way and in a way that we can we can verify that information in a stable way. That in itself is amazing. And, and really that helps to connect society. That helps that helps to solve a lot of problems. And it's really where we want to go. It's it's what we've always wanted to do with the internet anyway. It's connecting people, right. it's utilizing resources and coming together to combine the power of all of those resources. So when you start to think about the real world and kind of a reflection of this technology comparatively, you know, we have in terms of processing transactions, we have American Express cards and MasterCards and and Visa, and you have different cards that give you different points. And then we have wire transfers and ACH transfers. And then we have the SWIFT network. And Venmo, PayPal. Right, yeah, exactly, yeah. Venmo, PayPal, all these different ways of sending money. So the future of blockchain is multi-chain for sure. That's right. That's definitely going to happen. 
Bitcoin is the the gold. It's the reserve currency, really. That's the way that most people in in the space view things is that Bitcoin does not have regulatory issues and it does not function as a smart contract platform. So it does not work as a security. So in in the eyes of the government, there's a lot less regulatory risk because it's viewed as an asset. It's viewed as really a store of value. And the way that Bitcoin is created is even a reflection of that. It's, it's truly a store of value. It's digital energy, to be honest, is what it is. Because right. it takes energy to generate these unique numbers. And that is what Bitcoin is. So it's just a store of value, just like gold was a store of value. If you're enjoying this episode, then please consider pulling your phone out, tapping that share button, and sending this to one person that you think would enjoy it. Obviously, it would be huge for me, but it could be even more game-changing for that person. You just never know what can inspire or help someone else out. I want to take a second to tell you about Secret Sonics, a podcast by Ben Wallach and Carl Bonner. Secret Sonics is one of my favorite shows, and it's now double amazing with the addition of Carl Bonner as a co-host. Ben and Carl have teamed up to discuss the real-world trials and triumphs of music production. They cover it all from mixing and studio tricks to branding and mindsets. If you're a fan of progressions, you'll be a fan of Secret Sonics. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts or hit the link in the show notes. Well, I, you know, like I said, I, I know just enough to ask questions but not understand. Bitcoins are created via mining, which is a processor-intensive thing, and there's a maximum number of Bitcoins that someday will be hit. Mm-hmm. Is that the only cryptocurrency that this mining is, or are there other currencies that are also based on mining and scarcity? Yes. So, you know, I, I think that that's the economics of each different blockchain technology. It, it's really, is really important. And it differentiates between all of them greatly. And it's kind of the downfall of crypto right now and and why why it does get a bad name in in a lot of different ways and I'll kind of start on the complete opposite side of that question and, and work my way back you have a lot of speculative plays in crypto right now such as dogecoin and shib and meme coins you know these things that when you start to break them down and you look at how many of them are and what the price is, they're created with an intention to be a scam. So if you own a coin, if you own Dogecoin, if you own Sheep, I'll probably insult a lot of people, you're probably going to lose a lot of money. If you haven't already... you telling me I'm going to lose all $5 I put on Sheep? Right, if you... If, <laughs> if you if you didn't you know if you weren't the one that that came up with it you you might you might be the one left out because when you when you start to look at the the economics of it you know everybody on earth would need to own a, a hundred thousand of them or something like that to for it to reach a dollar so it, right. you know you start to see these these insane calculations that no you know as much as you'd like to believe that something is going to go to a certain price or um, it, it's not going to happen. And, and some of these crypto plays even have the possibility to print more of them for the supply to go up. Oh, once the, once they've maxed out, they can, they can just go 
turn it on again, turn, turn the fountain back on. Some of them work like that. And oh, wow. So Bitcoin is 21 million of them. And it uses a proof of work mechanism to generate them. So it's proof of work. It's the energy put in to create a Bitcoin that gives it its value. And the algorithm that is in place for Bitcoin mirrors that of gold. So if you go back and look at gold compared to Bitcoin over time, the gold rush in the beginning, it was lots of gold. It was easier to dig the gold out. We got more advanced. We kept on mining the gold, kept on mining the gold, and it kind of just skyrockets up until you hit a place where the price of gold stays about the same. It doesn't really go up that much. And the supply of it is about flat. The supply of gold isn't going to go up. And that's the mirroring of Bitcoin. So why does everybody believe in it? Why are, why are so many investors invested in it? Because the economics of it work out in favor of buying in to something that is programmed to increase in value. So the, the smart contract platforms that are really good, they have nice economics in them where they are built for longevity and they use different mechanisms to run the network. So instead of needing to mine them, they came up with a mechanism called proof of stake. And that is a way that you prove that you believe in the network by taking whatever you have and staking it, putting it in a place and saying, I'm not going to touch this or move this. So I'm going to hold on to this supply and I'm going to provide liquidity for these transactions to take place. I'm not going to sell this. I'm not going to move it around. I'm going to stake it here. And the proof of staking that compounded by millions of people doing that proves that the network is stable. It's sitting there. That Ethereum is not going to go away. That Solana is not going to move. It's going to stay. And those nodes that stake something are what end up validating the network and running the transactions. So the belief and the trust in the network is proven in people holding it. Mm. And you could think of that in the same way as any type of asset. If you want to go back to music, you can, you can even kind of start to think about that. You know, what records do you own? What records do you own that you're, you're never going to get rid of? What record do you buy by an artist that you're never going to get rid of? Right. And proving that you're holding on to that is really what the value is for that art. Yeah. So that that's one of the most powerful mechanisms for running a network is is a proof of stake mechanism because you know you're not having to put in all this energy to mine something off of cryptographic hashes and there's some other benefits um you know in in these consensus mechanisms and things that are involved for moving things around the network. So that's the the kind of difference between Bitcoin and, and a smart contract platform type of currency like Ethereum or Solana. Interesting. So a question for 
for my curiosity that maybe a lot of people won't care about. Maybe they will. The um, so if you stake your Ethereum or whatever, is does your computer become like connected and is on the ledger checking things, or you're just staking your asset and you're or when you're not involved in the network of blockchain? So usually, what you do is you could go and run. So Ethereum actually started out as a as a proof of work network, and they kind of have this weird sort of split thing right now. And then they're they're moving to a proof of stake mechanism, mostly because they're they're low transactions and the energy use debate uh, issue that came you know has has is is around and and is something to talk about. And so they started out with proof of work and they're going to move to a proof of stake system. And and what you typically do uh, as you know an an end user is you go and you go to your wallet and you find someone that's running a validator and you stake with them. So you go in and you say, I'm going to stake my stuff here. And in return for staking it, you get a return on that Ethereum or that Solana or that Polygon, whatever it is that you're, you're staking. Okay. You, can, you gain a yield on that. So it, it fluctuates between 5 and and 20% return on your money. So you can take your $100 and put it in. And at the end of the year, you got $109. And you also help to keep the network running by not moving your money. And if you think about banks, if you think about kind of how all financial institutions work, and like I said, how music works, how art works, it's it really is improving that you're holding something that you, that you believe in, that you believe in it. I mean, we, yeah, nothing would work if you didn't believe in it. So it's a much more efficient way of having things work and it benefits um, the user by rewarding them back. That's cool. So th- that's, that's making me think, I want to transition a little bit. You say, talk, you talk about like holding things, like makes me think about, uh, I want to get into like NFTs, but yeah, you're right. If like, if somebody was just like selling Picassos at the flea market every weekend, then Picassos wouldn't be worth millions of dollars. It's the fact that like when you get one, you want to keep it for 25 years. That's why it's worth something. Yeah. It's like yeah. the the OG proof of stake. But can we, um, can we switch it? Because smart contracts kind of lead into NFTs and I feel like that's the current hot topic as of what is it February 10th so people know when we're doing this so they when they give us a yeah. hard time we can yeah and we can date this are are I mean they've been they've been the talk of the town for a while uh that's right the the nft uh noses feet and toes no it's a uh, non-fungible tokens so you know I I've been I've been I, I gotta say I've I've been really blown away um just by everything in the space like positive and negative when something like that is happening you know i i can only remember a time in this world where technology was the same and that and that's 1998 1997 when blogs and and publishing on the web came came about and we're getting to this place where you know first version of the web you could read second version of the web you could read and write and this third version is you can you can read write and own and that ownership is really the powerful thing 
if if you're able to really declare that you own something, there isn't much more that you can that you can do with an object aside from from owning it and 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 for that to be agreed upon by other people that you own that right and i guess we should define what a non-fungible token is what an nft is and when you look at bitcoin every bitcoin is a bitcoin right so that's right if i give you a bitcoin like it doesn't matter what bitcoin i give you they're all worth the same thing they're 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 all worth probably forty four thousand five hundred dollars i'm assuming right now uh but an NFT is unique. It's non-fungible. So you cannot change this object and, and it is unique. And that's, that's the important part. NFTs are unique objects. And that's kind of basically it. Now, the problem is that we're really, really early. We're mostly dealing with, when we talk about NFTs, most people are talking about Ethereum most people are talking about a network with lots of political issues, a lot of technical issues, a lot of technical debt. All of that combined has created a bit of a very volatile news cycle and a lot of uh, polarized opinions about, about NFTs. And I would say that that's a very good indication of something worth looking at. And also worth noting that in the first version of blogs and publishing systems, we did not get things right. It did not work out great. We're only kind of just now evolving to the point where publishing on the web is a smooth process. Okay. And I would say there's still a bit of refinement to do there as well. So in this non-fungible token world, it is like the Wild West, and things are going to change dramatically. The concept in itself is really great because you can go and have a digital asset that is unique, that you own, and you can prove that you own it. But what you're buying and, and the fundamentals underneath it can vary depending on what the contract is who designed the contract and how it's put together. I think that some of the fundamental building blocks for NFTs are not as advanced as they will be in the future. And I think that the application and the implementation of that, the use of NFTs is also earlier than the actual creation of the NFTs. People don't quite know even what to do with these things at the current moment in time. Right. So I think that it's really interesting to look at the web in, in these different you know, sections and periods of time of what you can do and, and kind of a reflection of how the internet and, and the connectivity sucks things up. But ultimately things start to reflect the real world. So I'd say in, in 1998, early 2000s, we had iTunes, uh, you owned MP3s, you would buy files on the Apple Music Store, the iTunes Music Store. And then your activity online was a bit different. 
there was still this act of actually buying a digital asset that was really more like as close as you could get to something physical. And the only problem was that, you know, those files could be copied. There wasn't a lot of proof that you owned it, but you, you were storing these files on your computer. So you had physical access to these. And then we kind of, everything, including publishing, and I think that this is, this is the core problem that people are, are running into. In early stages of publishing, people owned their content. That's, that's the term that they would use and, and still use, that you would run your blog and you would have it stored, all your information would be stored on a database, on your server, you'd open up your file client, you could upload your images, and all that information was right there. So you could have access to it. Then the invention of Instagram and Facebook kind of washed that all away. And you no longer became the owner of your information. Someone else owns your information now. It's not yours. As soon as it's online, it's not yours anymore. Yeah. For the most part. Yeah. I'd say 99.99% of the content that people put online is no longer theirs. And the flow, you know, to the blockchain is really how do we solve that problem is, you know, the problem is, is that we got our ownership of content taken away from us by Facebook and Google, and they weaponized our data against us ultimately. No, no. (laughs) Might, might sound like a strong word. The Facebook slash meta stock is uh, not doing too great. And I think, I think that's for a few different reasons, but ultimately it's because someone came out and, and proved that Facebook is harming our mental health. And that kind of shined a light on what they're doing with our content. And it's, it's kind of a, the greatest scam I've, I've ever seen. It's kind of a, you know, it's, it's brilliant until you realize it's evil and it doesn't serve anyone. And ultimately the pendulum swings back and you get to a place where artists are sick and tired of their content not producing results. And they essentially become slaves of these digital gods. Yeah. Painters have everything on Instagram and they're not getting paid for billions of people to see all of their art, which is kind of mind blowing. It's like these museums pay millions of dollars for a painting. Yeah. You know, the uh, Michelangelo, Picasso, and people travel from all over the world to go to the museum and see this beautiful painting. But Instagram ends up making money off of digital artists and making money off of people looking at that art. The blockchain comes into play because it provides transparency. And that transparency is really freedom. We need that for sustainability, really, for sustainability of content creation, for sustainability of the arts. And I think this this next wave of things starts with people getting outraged and 
upset over NFTs and uh, being kind of frustrated with how they work. And I guess I say all of that in in kind of trying to explain um, what an NFT is. So, you know, in in the simplest form, it's a digital asset. It's it's something that is proven to be unique. And functionally, how it works is you go and you have a wallet on the network, like an Ethereum wallet or a Solana wallet. You take your Solana wallet, you go to a marketplace, you find something that you really like, and you buy it, and it gets stored in your wallet, and you own it. Depending on what that NFT is, there's a multitude of utility that can be provided inside that NFT. So like we talked about earlier, royalties and and stuff like that. Right. You can have artist royalties built into NFTs so that when you go and sell that again, the artist will then make another commission. There's going to be an artist royalty and they get a percentage of every transaction going forward. And that's kind of the the foundational level of NFTs right now for how they work. Okay. And I think that in if we look at the evolution of file formats in general, we find that they get better over time. And I, I look at an NFT and a smart contract as a type of file format. It's data stored in a specific way. So it's an image stored in, in this particular container that someone purchases. And I think it doesn't, you know, for, for a lot of use cases, it's not perfect. It's not great. Uh, for other use cases, it's really wonderful. And I think that the progression of things is proceeding at a velocity that we've never seen before. That's true. The only thing equivalent to the adoption of crypto, the growth of crypto is follows the same kind of timeline as internet adoption, except on a smaller time scale. Mm. So uh, I have a chart here. Um, I love the, charts. The lines, <laughs> the lines basically are like the same thing um, as the internet. So the, the internet growth goes from 1990 to 2000 and uh, you get uh, a billion users. So 1990 to 2000. So we've got crypto. It's going to hit a billion users by 2024 and in 2014 we had basically 100 users right wow okay so within a 10 year time period we're accelerating even a little bit faster than the rate of internet adoption so crypto's kind of even outpacing internet adoption and i don't think that there's any other technology that exists that had as quick of an adoption level and when you start to look at crypto, I guess what people think is this is a fad. But the truth about networks is that there's certain inherent laws and mathematics that go with them that prove otherwise that this isn't a fad. And when you get to a certain level, uh, this relates to something that you can look up called Metcalfe's Law something that kind of governs. I looked at that before we got on here. 
yeah, kind of governs and it explains the laws of networks and and why this adoption explodes and and how the utility of of decentralizing everything helps everyone communicate. It helps the growth of of art, of commerce, um, and I think the intersection of of those two as well. So I, I have a bunch of questions now, and I kind of want to deal with like some maybe some hypotheticals, or maybe they're not hypotheticals. I just don't know if these are things that are discussed on the internet. You were talking about the the ownership, right? And it's, you know, the NFT, it's a unique object that somebody owns and Web 3.0 is really all about your ownership. If we're in this like period of everything is free and like, you know, I can put whatever I want on Facebook and they're just mining my data, I can put my photos up on Instagram. It kind of reminds me of like, post Napster music, right? Be, be pre iTunes where nobody wanted to pay for music because there was a stipulation or this assumption that music was free now, now that we have LimeWire and Napster, right? Are, are we potentially in this period where like we're going to be able to take ownership of all of our content, whether that be video or music or, or uh, written word or whatever, but people aren't going to want to pay for it? because everything has been free for 20 years. And also, maybe I'm looking at it the wrong way. Maybe the point of owning your content is not to generate income. Maybe I'm just looking at it very capitalistic. Does my question make sense? So I think that the the mentality that we've had instilled in us from institutions, it's a flawed model, obviously. I mean, it, it's, what, it's what people complain about, that that capitalism is evil and you know these these big companies have set up all of these restrictions and and boxed boxed us in to thinking they're you know they're the ones that are selling it they're the ones that are in control and i am not alone in this thinking that in the future you know you you um you know our kids in the future will probably say to us hold on like you you uploaded your pictures and and then like you didn't get rewarded for that and we'll say yeah that's what happened that's what happened they're going to say like oh well your music was played but you didn't get paid for the streams the way that things work once you take out some of those inefficiencies in the way that the corporations function. And, you know, I think that it's, you know, you take Facebook and Instagram and Spotify and, and the whole lot of them, and they're really taking advantage of artists and they're pocketing uh, a lot of money uh, that otherwise would be put to better use going straight to artists. They would gladly, you know, the, what what else would become better? Not you know not just looking at the money equation of it, but just the the psychological and and the social aspects of having systems that are transparent and where people actually get paid for what they create are are going to be astounding. So I I don't I don't think that we'll get to a place where no one wants to, to pay for it. I think that what you kind of see in when you, when you take a look at internet applications 
is that they try and capitalize on the the tip of the iceberg and the the biggest i guess the biggest slice of the long tail and that would be the most popular section and it's just a sliver of what everybody is you know quote unquote everybody is consuming but it's what they can capitalize off of the most but the internet has proven that the long tail the niche markets are vast and people in these niche markets like supporting each other people like paying for things that they enjoy people like overpaying for things that they enjoy and i think that that's just going to compound with the utility increasing in these applications so the more decentralized you get the more niche markets that you have the more adoring fans that you have more people that are enjoying art are going to be paying for that and gladly i think yeah of course there's people that don't want to pay for anything but <laughs> you pay 15 bucks a month for spotify i do too and then when they tell me that it's 20 bucks a month because of inflation or you know they got a of their bonuses we're going to pay that too so um if yeah, you start true. to look at like how cheap music really could be if the money was not getting cut out i don't know what the percentage is really ultimately for artists of of what they get but if you doubled the um, that percentage of what they actually get it'd be massive and especially the network effects of that on smaller artists i would would be astounding yeah because i i was actually listening to another another podcast and and this came up but if you were as a musician or or any kind of artist if you're giving up less of your rights to these in between companies you actually you can make significantly more money and charge significantly less for your content yeah it's like you could you could give your fans what they want at at the most insanely you know gracious price tag but you're keeping you were getting so little in the first place you were getting screwed constantly so you yeah i I, I guess i never really thought about it that way yeah well what artists make money off of now touring right yeah touring yeah and that's exactly what you're talking about that's somebody that loves that band that they're coming out they're going to pay yeah high dollar to come and see that concert because they want to have that experience would half the artists that tour tour if they didn't have to i don't know the answer to that question but i'm yeah, sure that know. there's a lot of artists that tour that don't really want to tour but they have to tour yeah and you know breaking through that barrier on spotify of getting you know, your billion streams that's that's ridiculous yeah yeah. Who makes money off of off of their music that in in a capacity to to be a a an artist that lives off of their art in in the music world anyway. You know, it's a it just the picture is like when does this get better? And I I think only when you're focusing on the people that really really want what you're creating and having a mechanism to sell that to them and for them to purchase that in a way that doesn't involve a middleman. Well, what is, because I'm, I'm thinking like, 
there's a lot of tie-in to what you're talking about with like, you know, the thousand true fans concept that I've brought up on this show multiple times. Absolutely. Where does like being on the front page of Spotify and getting 10 million streams a day intersect with catering to your diehard niche audience? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like the, the massive artist can't disappear, but I guess they just become massive with their blockchain. So I think what it is, is the way that I have sort of reconciled that concept is, is looking at the real, the real independent artists and the real independent record stores. And that's also, that's also something that I think probably anyone under the age of 35 hasn't really experienced it, you know, going into a record store and, and finding a random album that you love and, and taking that home and record stores have been hurting for a while. I mean, that's, it hasn't been easy. Most of the artists that press records and most of the, they're, they're diehard music creators and they don't expect a, a penny out of it. They, they really do it just for the love of it. And it'd be great if it, it would be great if they got paid. So I, I kind of look at, well, how do you go from a small records shop to a conglomerate and bridge the gap in between? And then how big is that gap? And I think it's massive. Yeah, it's a huge gap. And I think that that as soon as you have the functionality and the utility to bridge that gap and open up those markets, those everything, you know, what what you can would consider from in the stock market, your small cap penny stocks all the way to your mid cap and large cap stocks. Those record stores are curators of assets, essentially. Yeah. And we don't have mid cap retailers of music anymore. Bandcamp does a great job of it. And I think that that's a glimpse into one of millions of independent online record stores that are curating. That's essentially what they do. Spotify curates. Yeah. Bandcamp curates the front page. Record shops curate. And that's why you go to a record store that you like is for the curation, for the selection. So inside of this equation of money and artist is that there still is room for a middleman. But does the middleman need to take as much? Does there need to be as many middlemen? So in my vision for the future, I see that we will have people like you and I running little record stores on the blockchain where we've curated our favorite albums. Maybe we get 0.1%. Maybe we say we don't want any to cut. There's going to be all kinds of different distribution centers for these digital assets. And it's only because we don't have a model for this currently. Right. Because economically, you've been able to leverage the middlemen out these, you know, these, and I say middlemen, um, you know, medium sized middlemen out of the equation. And then it just gets to this hyperscale. What can we sell to every person? What is every person going to like 
that's what we will focus on because that's what we can make money on. That's what Spotify does. That's what Apple Music does. That's that's what that's where the industry sways to because that's where the money is. Yeah. And it's because of that. Really, I would say, you know, I don't want to say that it's greed. I think it's a lack of utility. I think it's a lack of functionality. And I think it's a lack of imagination in what you can do to empower the people that you really ultimately want to help. Now, I, I think that there is a place in the future where Spotify is going to be a blockchain-based music retailer. And they'll probably maintain their stance of this is the percentage that we take the sales. And a lot of people might still shop there. But my guess is that because of their legacy, because of their sunken costs already into what they have, that they're going to be late to the game. And that these medium-sized retailers or individuals are going to already see the benefits of having a thousand or 2000 or 3000 fans, a hundred fans. Right. That, Hey, for your music, for your art, or whatever you're creating. And your distribution will look completely different. You know, you can do it all on your own, or you can go and pop over to your retailer and sign up to be distributed for, through there for, you know, a much smaller percentage than what's getting taken from you right now. Yeah, that's really interesting. You, you can... Yeah, there's a place for this mom and pop middle middleman retailer. But what is okay, what is this what is the asset? Music streaming is all about convenience, right? So if if there is going to be some type of it almost sounds like we're going back to passing file ownership. Does it like go to your wallet and you start listening to music out of your, you know, music token wallet of whatever name somebody comes up with? Is that like how do how do you keep that consistent access to listening to whatever you, I guess in this case, own um, versus ownership, right? Because I use Spotify so that I can listen to whatever I want right now. Right now. So how do I do that on the blockchain? I mean, maybe there's, you know, what do you, what do you think? So we, we end up, you know, it's because we have, you know, the blockchain is computation and data storage, decentralized computation and data storage. That, that, that has a few different effects on the market. So what, what are you paying for, for Spotify? What does Spotify have to pay for? They have to pay for their own infrastructure right now. So they're paying for servers. They're paying for all of these, these different things. The blockchain gives us a lot of leverage as, as we would put it to do this computation, to do this storage, to have access wherever you are in the world. If you are, if you want to get your music and it plays just as fast in America as it does in Antarctica, that that can happen. So I see that you'll hook your wallet up to whatever player it is and you go ahead and you stream whatever it is that you've you've purchased and however that however that asset is hooked up to pay out is built into it. So I think you'll you'll literally carry around your entire music collection and have access to everything everywhere that you go and you, and you'll own it. So then is there is there a scarcity to to a music release? Do you just do you only make 10 million? There could be. 
Yeah. Because then you, I, I just think about like, you think about, you talk about vinyl and like CDs and it's like once, you know, once something went out of press, then all of a sudden you can't just walk in any store and get, you know, Abbey Road first, first original pressing. Right. So, no, this is interesting. My mind's twisting around here. You know, you can, you could slice it, you could slice it any way that you want, but I, I think that, I think that's, probably going to be an angle for a lot of people. Uh, and then I, I think that there's going to be more open choices that people make where, you know, it's, it's ultimately available for streaming as, as many times as possible. But yeah, I mean, that, that's kind of the beauty of it is that our destiny is not determined. Yeah. We get a say in this, like as, as creators, we get to de- determine what the future looks like. We, we actually get a say, we don't just, have to take whatever is handed to us and say, well, that's the best that we get. And that, I mean, that's, that's really where we're at right now. And I, I think that. Oh, it's for sure what's going on right now. The love of, of music is so profound to, to still live in, in, in a, this really like what you would call a crony capitalist environment for that love of music, for that love of art to be so genuine and so powerful to still exist for these industries, to still to to be able to profit off of art so heavily, I think that that is a testament to how powerful art is. And if there was just a little bit more give, like we're talking a bit, you know, percentages of give, where artists were making more to be able to be unencumbered creatively. Yeah. What would what would the world look like then? I I would say it'd be a pretty beautiful place. It'd, it'd be a nice place to create in. Anyway, when when you would have to stop thinking well, cause about because you, you could because <laughs> you could yeah yeah you wouldn't have to spend eight hours a day at Starbucks working and then go do some sessions and hope that you get ten million streams so you can make one hundred and fifty bucks or whatever. So yeah yeah. There's so many things that you've talked about that are like triggering. Like here, here's a couple of things that I don't know if you want to like make some randomness up. Like, you know, I'm thinking about like if you're a beat maker or like a sample pack maker, there's like a space where you could have NFT samples that are, there's a scarcity and a royalty tracking. And it's like, it's kind of endless. You know what I mean? It, it is. And, and we already, you know, we already do this, but we're, we're very limited in it you know there's you know i'm going to sell an item on gum road or whatever and i'm only going to sell this many of them and then that then the sale's done with so there you know i think it's just that the tools are all all centralized and and spreading that out is is really what will happen as this technology is embraced more and more and i you know the i, I think as it becomes more evident people will stop asking the questions of how is this gonna how is this gonna work how is this gonna take off is this is this gonna you know this sounds like it's too good to be true well the internet sounded like it was too good to be true as well yeah and this is kind of the next frontier and i i am biased i do i i hold lots of digital assets so you know full disclosure (laughs) but I sold a lot of digital assets at the wrong time. I did not believe and I didn't 
until there was an event horizon. And, and I think that that, you know, really is the question for most people. Is this past the event horizon? Are we in the land where this is, this is not just a dream? Is this, is this going to be real? And yeah, yes, definitely. This is, this is past the event horizon. What was the trigger for you on that? If you don't mind sharing. You know, to be honest, it's numbers. I like numbers. It's pure numbers. Um, <laughs> just numbers of users and numbers of like, just. Yeah. So, um, all right. You've got, we have a, we have a really good kind of comparison out there in, in terms of like, let's, let's realistically talk about who's using this. Um, so Ethereum was the, and still is, you know, the, the queen, the, the smart contract platform winner for right now. You know, they're, they're, they're holding that space. In May 2019, they had 0.3 million users. In October 2020, they had 1.3 million. And in August of 2021, 10.4 million. And that's users of one popular wallet called MetaMask. So we went from 0.3 million in 2019, 1.3 million in 2020, to 10.4 million in August of 2021. Wow. Those are, those are some pretty good growth rates. That's, it's not even doubling. <laughs> that's more, that's no, those are, more those than are tripling. Some nice, those are yeah. some nice 10Xs in there for sure. And when we look at that, and then now we have something to compare it to, I, I am a, a believer in the fundamentals of the different blockchains. And Solana is really a great one to compare because they're both layer one networks, which means they're not piggybacking on top of another network. And Solana has a wallet called Phantom, which is very popular as well as MetaMask. And in August of 2021, so comparatively, we'll look at Ethereum, MetaMask, August 2021 was 10.4 million. August 2021, Solana was 0.2 million. And October of 2021, Solana's Phantom Wallet was 1.2 million. So we're looking at, at very similar growth rates. In fact, much faster growth rates between Solana and Ethereum, showing that the adoption rates across smart contract platforms and even into these very new networks are growing exponentially as expected because of the laws of networking, Metcalf's law. So that that was you know a a big one for me. But what really blew my mind, and I can do this for a lot of there there's a lot of networks that I'm very interested in. I just find that Ethereum was the the first one into this smart contract platform arena. And Solana is kind of the latest, I will say, contender. Solana is a contender with some very interesting traits. And Solana had, um, we have a metric called TVL, which is total value locked in a network. So the total value locked in Solana in March 25th of 2021 was 144 million. 
in today, the total value locked in Solana is 7.8 billion. And from September, September of 2021, there was 3 billion locked. And on September 15th, there was 12 billion locked. So we're going to these multiples in months and days that you'd never, you could never imagine that kind of growth. But when you're seeing that tens of billions of dollars and, and market caps that are, are hitting into, you know, almost a triple digit million territory, and you're seeing institutional investors getting involved when you see, you know, as um, last month, there was a, a really interesting incident uh, that took place where there was a investor that purchased between two and $18 million worth of Bitcoin every hour for about a week. What? So <laughs> I, think, I think that, you know, the investment and the money going in, um, along with looking at how these function, the scarcity of them, and then when you start to look at the ecosystem, that's when it gets really interesting. And I had the wonderful opportunity to go to a conference in Lisbon, Portugal in November, and I saw some pretty amazing things and got to meet and talk to a lot of people developing some of these applications in, in the Solana ecosystem and other places. It's just amazing what happens in a year when there's enough utility in something. Yeah. The amount of money going in is really not a metric that I like to talk about because I don't like to focus on that, but the value that's there, the potential is, is proof. And there wouldn't be that much money locked in it unless you were able to do something on that network. And there's, you know, decentralized finance is kind of the, the entry point for all of these. And, and most of the blockchains have that, but we're starting to see music streaming, art marketplaces, organizations that run completely through smart contracts and do voting on different ideas that come up and kind of run everything through a smart contract. And it's like a, you know, a year, two years of something being out where we have these amazing applications already being created. And if it weren't just solely for that, if uh, everything else was gone and there was just Bitcoin, well, that's definitely as well. You know, you look at kind of this, the scarcity model of it, 98% of all the Bitcoins have already been mined. Uh, the next 2% are going to take us a very long time to mine. And the amount of money locked in is just proof. You know, there's intrinsic value here in the design of these protocols. And the design of these protocols can bring about great change in our own lives. They're not just Ponzi schemes like 
people say. They're not, it's not a racket. Right. There are a lot of things. It's the Wild West. You know, this is, this is new technology. The internet in 1998, there, there was a lot, a lot going on. Um, you know, people don't use cryptocurrency just to bypass law enforcement uh, that, you know, they're, they're, it's not just a people using Bitcoin to buy drugs. That's like 0.05% of drug purchases were made with Bitcoin. So, um, that's yeah, kind <laughs> of a, it's, you know, it's, it's, you hear all of these crazy myths and, and then, and then you get to a kind of the big one, the big, well, this is ruining the environment. Oh yeah. I wanted to bring that up. So what's the story? Well, the story is. I don't, I don't want to be the, the expert on everything. Um, there's a really great site that exists out there called Bitcoin Mythology. And it explains kind of what these questions are, where they come from, and, and what the real answer is. Um, the truth is that any monetary system, any transactional system, ends up using a lot of energy. So we don't know what the real costs are in using a bank. And we also don't know what the societal and kind of, you know, the, the ripple effects, the, the costs that ripple out from the bank having fiat dollars and, uh, you know, the Fed being in, involved with, with printing money and, and, and having inflation and all of the side effects for that that actually do impact our use of energy. Right. There, you know, that's kind of one of those things is what, what's the hidden cost for doing things, how we are doing them right now. And there's a lot of answers to that. And I'm not, I'm not going to try and, and say that I know all of them. And I don't, I don't think anybody really does. Um, the big thing uh, that I think is important to think about is that Bitcoin mining doesn't take place. 24-7, just sucking down all of the energy in the world. And when Bitcoin mining kind of started, it did, and it wasn't as efficient. It's become a lot more efficient. Uh, the lifetime of mining equipment has gone from a few months to a few years. And 58% of all the power that's used for Bitcoin mining is renewable. So I'm not sure how that number compares to other places, but that's kind of the defense for Bitcoin. Yeah. And, and I think that I love the environment. I love nature. I mean, I used to go out of my way to drive cars with biodiesel. You know, I, I, I'm not for something that's going to ruin the environment. So I was very skeptical about the energy use of cryptocurrency as well. You know, you've been in technology long enough. You look at the energy usage of of Amazon Web Services and uh, Google Cloud, and you start to add those things up. I, th I think that it's pretty monumental in general how much energy we use in technology. And I think that yeah, I'd agree. You, know, you look at yeah, and and people are taking notice, and and as they should, and and they are making changes. You know the the new processors that exist, you know, ASIC chips, which are basically specific instruction set kind of chips. What Apple has done with the M1 chips, that is in effect, you know, trying to lower 
the amount of energy that's being used um, by consumers. And in Bitcoin mining, I've found it really fascinating. You know, the last thing that I'm interested in is oil and gas. But I found that in the world, the things that you really aren't interested in probably have some sort of lesson behind them. And there's a reason that I don't I don't like gasoline in my car. I don't like oil and gas. And there's an inherent knowledge that everybody has that we shouldn't be pumping something out of the earth and burning it and destroying the environment. So because of Bitcoin's kind of brilliant algorithmic model and the fact that it does require energy is kind of pushing people to find solutions to utilize the waste. So the flare gas that comes off of, uh, you know, when you start a new drilling operation, typically the oil and gas companies would have to pay carbon offset credits for that wasted energy that they didn't capture. So what have they done is that flare gas is now being captured and used to mine Bitcoin. Hmm. El Salvador is the first country to run on Bitcoin. Their Bitcoin is legal tender for them. They have a very interesting president and a very interesting country where, and this is going to sound wild, but they have a volcano, which they are going to be mining Bitcoin using the energy, uh, I'll say energy, coming out of the top of it. So mining Bitcoin with volcanic power. Sounds amazing. I think that there's, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot there to unpack. And in no way is, is Bitcoin, does Bitcoin need to go away? Does crypto need to go away? Does Ethereum need to go away? None of these things need to go away. They are not the cause of our environmental disaster. They are a solution to socioeconomic problems. And in one way or another, we're going to pay the cost. And I, I think that being on the right side of future is embracing something that is that is trying to solve problems. And blockchain technology and, and digital assets are trying to solve very difficult problems. I, I think that everyone involved with Bitcoin, mining and other cryptocurrencies is very conscious of the energy use and they are going to be finding fixes, solving problems. So that's my take on the environmental angle. And I, and I know it's a it, it's not a small issue. It's it's not easy to talk about. And you know, there's there's a saying in the market: buy the rumor, sell the news. And you can kind of you can kind of gauge how these things fluctuate over time with what you start to see your your grandma or grandpa say to you or you know and <laughs> i guess it depends on what age you know, your your parents are are asking you you know what's this bitcoin thing and and that's kind of a sell signal right there or or a signal that there's a, there's there's some kind of inflection point in the market there's something happening and yeah and and ever, if everybody's talking about us you know Dogecoin or, or Sheeb or something, it might it might be time to to figure out why 
and and if this is a good or a bad thing. And I think that at this stage, you know, for it to get as much criticism as it does, as it get for crypto to get as much criticism as it does, it's our responsibility as citizens that would like a future that is beneficial for all. We want a better future. It's up to us to put in the time to understand new things and definitely not to buy into what anyone says at any one point in time, good or bad about something, and to definitely not to have blanket statements. And to also, you know, realize where you live, realize who the people you talk to are and, and what environment you know, what perspective they're coming from and where they're getting their information and their news. Yep. I, I yep. think that, you know, crypto is going to get a bad rap for a while because there's a lot of people that don't want it to exist because it solves a lot of problems that, you know, I, I think are systemic. People don't have access to, to bank accounts in this world. You know, they go to, there's people that have to go to a check cashing place. There's predatory things happening in this world and we have technology that can make so many lives so much better. And that just goes from, you know, from zero to one, helping all everyone that you know and yourself. And this pushes the arts forward, pushes society forward. And it's worth looking at. It's, it's worth trying to understand. Yeah pretty much everything you just said in the last couple of minutes, I agree with completely. It's like, you just really have to, you have to dig in and learn new things. Like, you know, it's, I've talked about it on the podcast a million times. Dude, I have to go in a second and jump on another podcast. But if there's like one thing that you would say to musicians and producers and artists, like one thing that they should learn or one thing they should take away from just the potential of blockchain technology, what do you think that is? Don't be afraid of the unknown and, you know, what, look back at what you, what got you interested in creating. I think it was the unknown and the unknown will propel you forward. Don't be afraid of it. Figure out what that is and define your future, help define the future for others around you. That's amazing. That's a, that even unrelated to blockchain. That's a really, that's a really good piece of advice. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Okay. I'm glad there was was something there. I mean, obviously I I love crypto. I I love technology and I love art. I love music and it's, it's a pleasure to be able to, to talk with you about it. And if anyone's listening, has any questions, feel free to, you know, Drag me along and and <laughs> nail me for what I said that was wrong. And uh, if there was anything I said that's questionable, I like the discourse. I, I like talking about this. And I think we're all going to be really pleasantly surprised, uh, I hope. Or at least One surprised. One day. Yeah. <laughs> Surprise. Maybe not. Yeah. Not every, it's not going to be pleasant for everybody. But uh, <laughs> dude, this has been, uh, this has been a, a ton of fun. Um, do you want to tell anybody where they can find you if they want to give you a hard time on Twitter or whatever? Oh, yeah. You can, uh, you can find me at Noel, N-O-E-L, on Twitter. And uh, you can find me at NoelJackson.com. And my product strategy firm is online at necessary.vision. Amazing. Awesome. Noel, dude, it was really good seeing you. 
love hanging out. Let's do this again. Uh, we'll do blockchain so much, uh, part two next year since it changes so much, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Perfect. Thanks a lot, man. Appreciate it. So that's a wrap for this bonus episode. I hope you all enjoyed it. I've been super in blockchain and all the possibilities for music and art, so I was happy to get to hang with Noel and share it with you. If y'all want to hear more about stuff like this or any other kind of like far-reaching branch of something that can be tied to music, drop me a comment somewhere on the internet. I'll see what I can do about getting a guest. So on that note, I will see y'all next week for our next regularly scheduled episode.